you'd like to turn to the book of Job, we're going to be looking at Job chapter 20 this morning. That's on page 429 of the ESV Q Bibles. And we'll take the whole chapter. This is Zophar speaking, 1 through 29, Job chapter 20. Just about halfway through the book. Our continuing series, God and Suffering. Uh, Job has a lot to say on, on those topics. So we're going to continue our sermon series. Please join me in our prayer this morning. Father, as we come to your word, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We ask you to give us understanding, help us to see the true meaning of this passage. We want to understand what's being said in this chapter, and then we want to apply it. So, Father, help us to take what you teach us and um, allow it to impact how we live and, and what we think and believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sun Tzu was a Chinese general born in 544 B.C. He was a military strategist, and he wrote several things. One of the things he wrote was a book entitled The Art of War. You may have heard of it. It contained strategies, how to use spies, how to make alliances, tactics, and how to defeat the enemy. But probably the, the most famous quote from this book is this. Know your enemy. Know your enemy. So the purpose of knowing your enemy was so that you can take that information and use it to gain an advantage over your enemy. So for example, here are some of the, the quotes from The Art of War. If enemy troops are sent to fetch water for the group and those that are sent pause to drink first, the entire army is thirsty. If you see that your enemy has an opportunity to gain advantage, but they do not react, they are weary. If the enemy divides its power and sends half to attack while the other half retreats, they are trying to manipulate you to chase them. And it's filled with all sorts of other principles like that, observations meant to know your enemy. That was the whole purpose. Knowledge of your enemy greatly improves your chances of victory. How well do you know your enemy? How well do you know your enemy, Satan? Have you taken the time to study his methods, his tactics, devices that he employs or implores to uh, to ensnare people? Because make no mistake, he is our enemy. We are in a spiritual war. And in Job chapter 20, we've, we've got Zophar making his second and last speech. This is the second speech from Zophar, but it's also his last. The other two friends get one more. Zophar talks about how the wicked man's enjoyment of sin is always cut short. He talks about the deceitfulness of sin and God's anger. But also, as Zophar shares his second and last speech, we get a glimpse of how, uh, of how Satan deceives, how the enemy uh, employs certain tactics to, to ensnare. 
we get a glimpse of how Satan engages in, in spiritual battles. So Job chapter 20, in addition to seeing what's, what's there in the original context, it also helps us know our enemy. That's what this chapter does. So what we want to do today is use that information to gain an advantage. We want to know our enemy so that we will have a greater chance when it comes to fighting our day-to-day spiritual battles. So let's look at the chapter, Job chapter 21 through 29. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short? and the joy of the godless but for a moment. Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of the viper will kill him. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down from the profit of his trading. He will get no enjoyment, for he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. Because he knew no contentment in his belly, he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. There was nothing left after he had eaten, therefore his prosperity will not endure. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him. To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it down upon him into his body. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. Zophar's second and last speech responding to Job. And the first thing he says, essentially, let's paraphrase it, I'm offended. I am offended. I hear censure that insults me. Well, what is Zophar offended at? He's offended at the last thing that Job said. And if you recall, Job was talking about his end game, and uh, you remember he, he set forth his own end game, and he said, no, 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 I'm not going to the place of the wicked. Instead, I know that my Redeemer lives. So, so Job put forth this, this end game scenario in which he rises again because of his Redeemer. In fact, Job said, 
uh, I'm the one that's going to be vindicated. I'm the one that's in the end going to be, to be raised up. I'm going to receive God's favor, but, but you three, Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, you'll fall under the judgment of God. So Zophar does not like that. He doesn't like hearing that Job is continually rejecting their advice. He also doesn't like hearing that he's the wicked one, that he's going to be the one that falls under God's wrath and judgment. Remember, that was the very last thing that Job said at the end of chapter 19. Uh, Be afraid of the sword, was what he said. And so Zophar responds by saying, I'm offended. How dare you, Job? And then he moves on in verse 4, the short-lived rule is what we're going to call this. He says, do you not know this from old since man was placed on the earth? He's telling Job, I, I can't believe you don't know this. This is part of conventional wisdom. This is, this is universal, uh, universally acknowledged. Uh, here it is. It's the short-lived rule that the exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for a moment. The exalting could also be translated as mirth, joy, triumphing, rejoicing. Could be translated as a joyful shout. So the idea here is that the the joyful shout or the ringing cry, almost like a a hurrah, almost a celebratory uh, uh, exclamation of, of joyful shout, that from the wicked man is short lived. It doesn't last. It's only here for a moment. So Zophar is saying, Here, here's the short-lived rule. Whatever enjoyment that the wicked man gets from sin, it does not last. And the implication here is, that, as he says this to Job, is you're that guy. And you've enjoyed your sin for a while, but now it's time to, to pay the price. Verses 6 through 11 are a description of this short-lived rule. He goes on and explains it a little bit. Though his height might mount up to heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. In other words, no matter how arrogant, no matter how prideful, no matter how important someone thinks they are, it it doesn't last. No matter how powerful they are, it doesn't, doesn't last. They will be brought down. They will fly away, verses 8 and 9, be chased away. He will no longer be seen. Verse 10, his children will seek the favor of the poor. The wicked man will not leave anything behind. He's so utterly destroyed that there's nothing to give to his children. They'll have to either be forced to to beg or repay possibly what their father owed to others. Verse 11, it does not matter how strong the wicked man is, his joyful shout is short-lived. He will be brought down. So the first thing Zophar does is he introduces this short-lived rule. And the implication is, Job, this is what's happening to you. Your time's up. But then in verse 12, he moves on to the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, 12 through 14, he describes how evil tastes sweet at first, but then turns poisonous. You can hear that language, sweet in the mouth. Um, but in the end, it's the venom of cobras. It's, he's describing the deceitfulness of evil and how it always starts off with an attractive quality to it. There's always some kind of a short-term payoff that sin, sin advertises and shows. But in the end, it always causes suffering and pain and ultimately death. What tasted sweet at first turns out to be poisonous and deadly. Verse 15, any riches a wicked man accumulates will be taken away. And then verse 16, returning to that poison theme once again. 
The wicked brought down low will bite him like a cobra. Verses 17 and 18, he will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds or honey and cream. In other words, he's not going to see any benefit. The fruit of his toil, gone. The wicked will not have any lasting enjoyment. They will be denied. Why? Well, verse 19 tells us, for, for he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. In other words, because it's all ill-gotten gain. It's wickedness, Job. That's why it doesn't last. It's almost as if he's saying, what, how, what did, how did you think this was going to end, Job? Obviously, I mean, the Bible at the very beginning of the, of the book, it describes Job as the greatest in, of all the men in the East. And his enemies, or his friends slash enemies, are saying, how did you think this was going to end? Yes, you were up there and you were enjoying all this wealth, but obviously it's from ill-gotten gain. And now you're paying the price. Verses 20 through 29, taken down by God. Because he knew no contentment in his belly, he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. The wicked man is never content. That's what these verses are communicating. Always wanting more, never content with what he has. There was a, an extremely rich man, and he was asked one time, point blank, how much is enough? And the rich man replied, a little more than everybody else. I think that reveals that, that uncontent nature of, of greed, always wanting a little more. There was nothing left after he had eaten. Therefore his prosperity will not endure. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will, he will come against him, meaning God will come against him. And who's, who's he coming against? The wicked man. So in other words, at the, at the height of his pride and the feelings of, of self-security, that's when God will strike him and visit him with sudden misery. Verse 23, to fill his belly to the full, God says, okay, you like your belly to be full? I'll fill it. I will rain down anger on your body, burning anger. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. So the imagery here is uh, of God as a warrior uh, pursuing the wicked man, shooting an arrow through his body. And there's graphic language about how it comes out the front. And as it comes out, uh, terrors fall upon him. This is language of judgment. As the wicked man dies in verse 26, a place of utter darkness that has been prepared for him overtakes him. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasure, taken down by God. Taken down where? Well, to hell. It says a fire not fan will devour him. What kind of fire does not need fanning? What kind of fire does not need any kind of human intervention to make it burn? Divine fire. The hellfire of, of judgment that God has prepared. What is left in his tent will be consumed. This could be a reference either to a total loss of his, of his property and his possessions, but it could also be a reference to his family, the tent of a man or his household. Verse 27, the heavens will reveal his iniquity. This is so far telling Job, uh, no, Job, the heavens are not going to vindicate you. Yeah, I, I hear you talking about some kind of arbiter on high that will, will plead your case, but not so. In fact, the heavens are going to declare your wickedness. Good, it's going to reveal your iniquity. It's going to expose and confirm your guilt and your sin. Likewise, the earth will testify against you. 
Verse 28, the possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. Again, more judgment language. The imagery of, of possessions and household being dragged off or carrying away or swept away kind of contains quiet echoes of, of flood judgment language where things are swept away and taken away by God. And then verse 29, a summary verse. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. And of course, Zophar is on one hand talking about this fictitious or anonymous wicked man, but on the other hand, he's really talking about Job. You are that wicked man, Job. Your days of wealth and honor have come to an end. Your life has been cut short. That short-lived rule of wickedness is being applied to you, Job. That's what he's saying. The exulting of the wicked is short. Your joyful shout has been cut short. This is your portion and your heritage, Job. That's quite a a speech delivered to Job. Remember, these are supposed to be his friends. The longer it goes on, the the, the more the, the viciousness and the intensity of their speech towards Job increases. So this is Zophar saying, Job, you've enjoyed your wickedness for a while, but it's caught up with you, and God is bringing his judgment upon you. What started off as sweet and and gave you profit and pleasure is now turning into pain and poison. And it only gets worse from here, is what he's saying. That's that final judgment language. You're going off to a place where the fire is not fanned and the total darkness uh, envelops you. Know your enemy. Remember, that's our our challenge this morning. We we want to know our enemy. Now, one of the the biggest challenges of the book of Job is sifting through all the dialogue and determining and identifying what's true and what's not true. Because there are a lot of theological and philosophical and emotional statements being made, and it's up to us to be able to to move through these. I think it's a responsible um, uh, a decision to move through this and tag each one of these as either true or false, even when it comes from Job. Job makes a lot of statements. Not all of them are true. For example, Job 9.32, for he is not a man as I am. Talking about God, that's true. God is not like us in the sense that he is a uh, uh, created being. God, God is not created. There are lots of ways where, where God and man are different. He is not like us, um, and we can, should not relate to him as if he is a, just a man. But Job also says this in Job 10, 16, And were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion and again work wonders against me. Well, in fact, that's not true, because we know that that's exactly what happens. God exalts Job, he lifts him up again, And he doesn't come after him and hunt him like a lion. He doesn't, once again, work wonders against him and bring judgment. So that's not true. So as we go through the book of Job, that's one of the major challenges, is is tagging all these statements. Well, that one's true, that one's not, even if it comes from Job. But then there's a third category. There are some things in Job that are true, but misapplied. And that's what we have with chapter 20. Zophar has said a lot of true things, 
about Satan and about Satan's devices and about the nature of sin and its deceitfulness and the judgment of God, a lot of that's true, but he's misapplied it. He's saying, this is you, Job. This is your portion. This is your inheritance. Actually, it's not. Not even close. So although these, although these things are true, they've been misapplied. Is it true that the exulting or the joyful shout of the wicked is cut short and the joy of the godless is but for a moment? Yes. That's true, but it's not applied to Job. Zophar has made a correct observation, but he is wrong to apply it and say that Job is the wicked man. God is not bringing Job's life to a short. This, this, all this that has come crashing down on Job, his health, his possessions, his wealth, his children, all these things, the, 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 um, the rejection of Job by his peers and by his community, and from his perspective, seemingly being cut off from God, everything that he's experiencing is not because of his wickedness. Job was not living a wicked life. We know from the Bible that Job was not participating in evil living. He wasn't crushing the poor. He wasn't seizing houses that he didn't build. In fact, he was a blameless and upright man who turn from evil and who fear God. So the truth is this. We, we know that Job had the privilege of being chosen by God to be a type of Christ. Job was chosen by God to start off in this, this high estate and then be cast down, be humiliated, be be uh, rejected by men, to have his body broken and suffer greatly, and then once again at the right time, God raised him up, raised him up and exalted him. That is a, is a type of it that foreshadows and points to Jesus Christ. So Job, we know that all this that he's going through is for that reason. It's so that the reader in the future and us today can look at the scripture and be pointed to Jesus. And that we have maybe placed our faith in him and be saved from our sins. That's why he's going through all this. It's not because he's a wicked man that's had his time cut short. So we know the truth, but that's not how Zophar sees it. Now, even though Zophar has misapplied his speech to Job, the content is still true. So what I want us to do this morning and spend the majority of the message on is taking a closer look at what Zophar has to say about our enemy and about the deceitfulness of sin so that we know our enemy and take that so that we can use it to our advantage and have a greater chance of success in our day-to-day -day spiritual battles. That's what we want to do. So know your enemy. Let's take a look at the, the first thing he had to say, the short-lived rule. The short-lived rule. The exulting or joyful shout of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for a moment. One of Satan's strategies that he uses to ensnare and entice and entangle people in sin is to portray sin as never-ending. To portray sin without an end point. To think that sin lasts forever. To think that there is no day of reckoning. Satan does not want people to consider or even think about the fact that there's going to be an end point sometime to sin and that it will not end well. If we went home right now and we looked in our pantry or our cupboard or wherever we keep our 
purchase dry goods or food. And if we looked at anything that we've bought from the store that has a package or a label on it, they all have an expiration date. Some of them are fairly soon. You might have a, a gallon of milk in your fridge that says November 15th or something like that. It, I mean, days, it's going to be expired. Others are a little bit further out. You might see something with you know, August of 2022. And then if you've got something really long-term, maybe some particular canned good or, or something that's powdered or in a box, that might be years off in the future. It might say something like uh, August 2026 or something like that. That might be a while, but they all have an expiration date. I once knew a man who prepared a box of macaroni and cheese that was 10 years past its due date. He took one bite. That's all it took. Later he said, I thought it smelled and looked a little weird as I, as I was making it. One bite. Yeah, all food has an expiration date and it does not taste good and it's not good or healthy for you after that. It all goes bad. Sin also has an expiration date. Sometimes it's rather quickly. Maybe days. Sometimes it might be months. Sometimes year, years. But all sin has an expiration date. No one can go on sinning forever. There comes a time when all profit or pleasure from sin ceases. And what once tasted sweet starts tasting sour and is poisonous. God will not allow the wicked to continue forever. Know your enemy. All sin is short-lived. It just depends on the expiration date. So number two, the deceitfulness of sin. Let's go back and look at verse 12 through 14 again. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach and is the venom of cobras within him. So sin starts out as attractive or sweet. It provides some sort of profit or pleasure so that the one sinning wants to continue to sin. It doesn't start off bad. It starts off sweet tasting. And you can see that language in there. That's the reason where, where it says he, he, he loathes to let it go. He holds it in his mouth. He hides it under his tongue. The, the sinner wants to hang on to the sin because it's providing some kind of short-term payoff. It's providing some profit or pleasure that he's benefiting from. But at some point, that ceases and the sin inevitably turns sour and the cost of sin comes calling. Sin is always damaging, always damaging. And I want the junior high and high school students to pay particular attention to this. Sometimes you might hear the phrase, well, it's good to get it out of your system. Or, well, it's, it's you know, now's the time to sow your wild oats. Whoever's telling you that is lying to you Sin is always damaging, and I don't want us to think as Christians and as believers that because we're forgiven and because we're, we're in Christ, that sin somehow doesn't damage us, that we have this Teflon coating that enables us to, to rub up against sin and not get, have any damage happen to us. Sin is always damaging, and particularly junior high and high school students, the sins that you choose to participate in now will come back and haunt you later on in your life. Instead, sow the seeds of faithfulness, not wild oats. Thomas Brooks is an English Puritan 
who lived in the 1600s, and he wrote lots of things, but one of the books he wrote is titled Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he quotes Job, Job chapter 20. He quotes this, this section of, of Job, and he describes Satan's strategy, one of them, like this. He says, Satan likes to present the bait and hide the hook. Present the bait and hide the hook. And all of us are saying, you know, <laughs> that's how it works. It's true. There's always a sharp hook hiding inside the visually alluring and sweet-tasting bait. Know your enemy. Satan tries to present sin as consequence-free. No big deal. But lurking behind that appearance is the true pain, suffering, and shame that always accompanies sin. Remember that temptation is, by nature, deceptive. That's what temptation is. It is deceptive. We remember Adam and Eve in the garden. What happened there? Present the bait, hide the hook. What was the bait? It looked very attractive. You are not surely going to die. Just forget that. Just wave that off. You know, your eyes will be open. Your eyes will be open. You will become like God. So they took the bait, and then what was the hook? Sin entered into humanity, the fall. That's a pretty big hook. But it was hidden behind the sweet-looking bait. So present the bait, hide the hook. Sin is deceptive by its nature, the deceitfulness of sin. So number one, sin has an expiration date. Number two, the deceitfulness of sin. Present the bait, hide the hook. And number three, temptations are personalized. If you look back through chapter 20, you'll see there's language about eating and, and about a belly and sin that appeals to the physical appetite. And that's true. It's also symbolic, but that's true. Some sins appeal to the, the physical appetites. Well, the, the other time there's seen language about uh, the poor, crushing the poor, seizing houses. So that seems to be more financially oriented. Um, temptations comes in all sorts of varieties, all sorts of different packages, and they are personalized. Satan is not an idiot. He knows you, and he knows what kind of bait has been effective in the past. So he personalizes temptations to fit you. What works for one person may not work as effectively for another person. We might shake our heads and say, oh, I just don't get it. How could that person uh, fall into that sin? Or, oh, wow, that just seems totally reckless to me. I don't understand that. And then on the other side of the coin, <laughs> that person is shaking their head at us. How could you fall for that? How, how could you get caught up in that? It's because it's personalized. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan that I've been referencing, said this, quote, Whatever sin is in the heart of man is most prone to, that the devil will help forward. Satan loves to sail with the wind and to suit men's temptations to their conditions and inclinations. Again, we're probably all inside shaking our heads. Yeah, 
Know your enemy. When we look at all this together, the hidden expiration date on sin, the, the present the bait and hide the hook deception strategy, and the customization of, of, of temptations, we really start to see how dangerous sin is. Since temptation is unavoidable, let's make sure we're equipped to face and fight these spiritual battles. So now that we know our enemy a little bit better, thanks to the Word of God, Job chapter 20, let's use that knowledge to our advantage. We're going to go through four points here. Number one, temptation is real. Temptation is real. Acknowledge that we are faced with temptation, and temptation by its nature is deceptive. I remember the first time that this was really impressed upon me. Um, you know, as a child, if you've been blessed with a Christian household and a family, your parents are there for you, they do a lot of protecting, don't they? They take the heat. And so you're protected from a lot of that stuff. But eventually, as a, as a young adult or as a young person, you start to grow and you start to bump up against the world and it gets kind of nasty. And I remember the first time that I heard the, with forcefulness, you know, spiritual battle and temptation, and I don't remember when or where, I just remember it was a good sermon. It's just a good sermon. And, and the pastor or preacher or whoever it was, was preaching on sin, and they were talking about the reality of Satan and the fact that uh, temptation and spiritual battles are real. And he was talking about victory, he was talking about failures. And I remember hearing this thinking, wow, yeah. How come I haven't heard this before? Now this is something I can relate to. He was talking about the realness of temptation. I think we all need to come face to face with the realness of temptation. You have an enemy who does not want you to be living for Christ. You have an enemy that wants to take you down or take you out. Jesus is real. Satan is real also. In fact, he wants to destroy you. He is literally out to get you. 1 Peter 5.8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is out to get you. Temptation is very real and he's not going to give up. He wants you to think that sin lasts forever. He wants you to think that there's no expiration date. He doesn't want you to see the hook so I think, first of all, temptation is real. Understanding that what is happening and understanding that it's real. Number two, keep your distance. Keep your distance. Maintaining as much distance from temptation and sin as possible. Uh, we've all heard of the, of the something called claustrophobia. No, that is not the fear of Santa Claus. It is the fear of confined spaces, tight spaces. And one person that had claustrophobia was asked, well, how do you deal with that? You know, that sounds like it's going to be really impairing on your life. And they said, well, no, not really. I, I just stay out of caves. I don't crawl into tight spaces. Oh, okay. Another person had an inordinate, uh, irrational fear of the dark, and they could, couldn't go to sleep at night in the dark. They said, well, how do you deal with all that? I mean, it gets pretty dark at night. And they said, well, I leave the closet light on and the door open. Oh, okay. Someone else was, was afraid of heights, deathly afraid of heights, and they said, well, how do you, how do you deal with that? And they said, well, I don't go up into really tall buildings and go over to the window and look down. And I don't go to the edge of cliffs and look over the edge. And they said, oh, okay. 
You mean if you don't do all those things that it really isn't a problem in your life? And they said, that's right. How about that? That's pretty simple. It's a simple strategy, but it's effective. Keep your distance from sin. We know that there is a hook, a a nasty-looking, rusty, disease-ridden hook hiding inside that sweet-tasting bait. Don't go near it. What happens to fish when they start nibbling on the bait? They get hooked. Don't nibble on the bait. Don't go near it. Don't even smell it. As much as possible, don't place yourself in those circumstances. If there's a certain time or a certain place or a certain set of conditions where you know that it's going to increase the likelihood of you encountering temptation, stay away from it. Don't even smell it. So temptation is real. Keep your distance. Number three, consider the consequences. Consider the consequences. Since we know our enemy and we know that whatever is on the outside, we know whatever that that sweet, alluring, tasty bait is, we know there's a hook in it. Let's think on the hook. Let's think about the hook. Let's think about the consequences, the pain, the shame, the suffering, how it will hurt others. Satan's counting on people not seeing the hook until it's lodged itself in their mouths. But if we consider the consequences of sin during temptation, we'll be better equipped to fight it. If we ask ourselves this question, what is this going to cost me spiritually? There is a cost. What is it? What is this going to cost me spiritually? Think about the hook. View sin with eternal eyes. View sin with eternal eyes. Think about eternity. Think about about sin with an eternal perspective. When I'm lying on my deathbed and I'm looking at the highlight reel of my life, is this something I'm going to be proud of and I want to show everybody? Or is this something that I'm going to hate? I'm going to detest? And if I could do this over again, I would stay away from it. That's looking at sin with, with eternal eyes. So consider the consequences. Number four, and this is the most important one of all. Set your mind on Christ. Set your mind on Christ. All those other things are helpful strategies. Those are good things. Set your mind on Christ. When I've talked with people who have come to me because they're struggling with sin and they're, they're losing the battles more often than they're winning the battles and that's why they're coming to talk to me. One of the things I ask them gracefully is, are you spending regular time in the Word? Are you spending regular time reading and meditating and, and praying on God's Word? Are you reading it? And when I read it, I don't mean I'm reading it and then I get three-fourths through the page and I realize I've been thinking about something else and I'm not sure even what I read, but instead of going back, I just press on so I can check off that I read. That, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about... Have you read it for comprehension? Do you understand it? Are you spending unhurried time connecting with God through his word? Nine times out of ten, and they're very upfront. No, no, I haven't been good about that lately. Yeah. There's a connection there. Setting our mind on Christ. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan that I've been referencing, as he was writing this book, called Precious Remedies Against Satan Devices. He said he encountered increased spiritual attack. What a shock. 
What a shock. As he's spending time writing this book designed to equip believers so that they can know their enemy. He's basically writing a Christian art of war. He's giving that to the church so that they're better equipped to resist Satan's devices. He encountered spiritual attack. No, no, no surprises there. But he said, and this was the, his prayer and his goal for writing this book, and these are, these are his words, Here's, here's it summed up in, a, in one sentence. That you would make it your business to study Christ, His Word, your own hearts, Satan's plots, and eternity more than ever. Did we catch that? So, so there it is. Just look at sin through eternal eyes. I see eternity. Uh, Satan's plots definitely know your enemy. That's what he's saying. And your own hearts. But... What's first? Study Christ and His Word. If we're going to be equipped to fight our day-to-day spiritual battles and win, then we've got to study Christ and His Word. Know your enemy, but set your heart on Christ and His Word. Know your enemy, but set your mind on Christ and his word. For every one look at Satan, take ten looks at Christ. For every one look at his devices and and the the way he ensnares you, take ten looks at Christ and his word. Ten to one ratio. In addition to being Zophar's last word, Job chapter 20 provides us with teaching on our enemy's tactics, who is out to get us. It allows us to know our enemy. Sun Tzu in the Art of War encouraged their, his readers to know their enemy from a military standpoint. And we mentioned a few quotes at the beginning. Here's one more. Here's one more quote from the Art of War. He says, If the enemy depletes their food supplies and abandons essential cooking tools, they're at the end of their rope. The troops now have nothing to lose and will fight to the death. Satan is a defeated enemy. Jesus won the war on the cross. That's, it's been decided. It's not in question at all. But yet we are still fighting day-to-day spiritual battles. That's also very real. But the war has been won, which means Satan is a defeated enemy. He knows it's over for him. He has nothing to lose. He's at the end of his rope. He's going to fight until the death. Know your enemy, but set your mind on Christ. Amen. (coughs) Heavenly Father, your word is given to us so that we may be fully equipped. And one of the things your word teaches is the, the devices of, of Satan, the deceitfulness of sin, the, the presenting the, the bait and hiding the hook. This, this is all true. And Father, allow us to, to know our enemy, not for the sake of getting to know him personally, but getting to know his tactics, his devices, his schemes, his lures, so that we are better equipped to fight our day-to-day spiritual battles and win. Father, help us to set our minds and our hearts on Christ and his word.
Fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.